The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and today. 1965, Part 4, August 15th through September 4th. Okay, we have a little Beatles song, and if you know the lyrics, join in. Listen. Ringo, George, and John, and Paul. Good guy, Beatles. New York loves you best of all in all the USA. So stick around all night. Stick around all day, and if you can, we'll play your hits on WMCA. opened their third tour. On August 15th, the Beatles began their 1965 American tour with two nights at Shea Stadium. Hi, everybody, and welcome here to Shea Stadium, and Cousin Brucey is very, very honored to have been selected as the official spokesman here at Shea Stadium. And WABC Radio, of course, very, very proud. Ladies and gentlemen, Cousin Brucey was with the fabulous Beatles before the show. They're ready for you. Are you ready for them? I bet you are. Ladies and gentlemen... They'll be up in a few moments. They are getting themselves ready. And let me tell you, they told Cousin Brucey they can't wait to make this their greatest appearance. This was, at the time, the largest concert ever given. One of our finest newspaper men, the number one showman of the world, and most important of all, a truly great American, Mr. Ed Sullivan. In front of 56,000 people, Ed Sullivan introduced the band. Thank you very much, Sid. Now, ladies and gentlemen, honored by their country, decorated by their queen, and loved here in America, here are the Beatles. Here they come. Hello, hello, hello. Oh, oh, hello. Hey, hello. Hey, hey, hey. Hello. Oh, Paul. Hello, John. Murray the K gives us his impression of the Shea Stadium performance. I felt that it was a combination of a snake pit and general hospital all going on at the same time. First of all, nobody heard me. It was absolutely impossible. You may have heard two or three words. That was when the big bet went on. 
uh, between Paul and John as to what side of the stadium would break through the barriers. I am very close to the stage. I can't hear them. So I figured, okay, I'm going to go back to the stu- back to the uh, dressing room. I go under the stands, and a sight hits me as if I was in a disaster area. The New York police and special police are carrying girls out in dead faints, others in hysteria, screaming, thrashing around. There must have been over three to four hundred. There are ambulances there. Just the absolute uh, excitement, the fact that they were there, the fact that they had we'd seen in whatever it was that they caused. So under the stands is this emergency disaster area of them never stopping. I just, there was one girl kept passing by and the cop says, listen, we're running out of space. Can we use your dressing room? I said, sure. Do you want me to scrub? But it certainly wasn't a concert that you talk about that she didn't they do this no one ever talks about the, if you ever speak to anyone about a Beatles concert they never talk about she didn't they do this great or didn't wasn't this song sensational all they talk about was the scenes around them the fact that they didn't hear them or that they couldn't see because someone was jumping up and all allow us to drop right into the arena and so we had to land on the the roof of the World Fair. From there we went uh, into the stadium in a Wells Fargo armored truck. <laughs> we got on the helicopter at Wall Street and instead of going right to the show, the fellas started going round, zooming round the stadium saying, look at that, isn't it great, fellas? And look at the World's Fair, and look at this, and we're hanging on there by the skin of our teeth. Well, it was marvellous. It was the biggest crowd we ever played to. It was the biggest live show, I think, anybody's ever done, yeah. the told us. Yes, sure And it was fantastic, you know. And uh, it was just great. They could almost hear us as well, even though they're making a lot of noise, because the amplification was... We did I'm Down, so, I've, you know, because I did the organ on the record, I decided to play it on stage for the first time. I didn't really know what to do, because I felt naked with that guitar, so I was doing old jelly. They was putting my foot on it, and, for, and George couldn't play for laughing. <laughs> yeah, I was doing it for a laugh, but, you know, the kids didn't really know what I was doing. I was just jumping about, and, you know, I only played about two bars of it. You forget who you are. You, yeah. Once you start, once you plug in and the noise starts, you're just a group playing anywhere again. You forget that, you know, your Beatles yeah. or what your records are. You're just singing. We'd like to do a song of our LP album, Beatles 6, I think. Can you hear me? Hello? It's called Dizzy Miss Lizzie. Dizzy, Miss Lizzie, the way you rock and roll. You make me dizzy, Miss Lizzie. Well, 
Everybody's trying to be my baby. Well, they took some honey from a tree, dressed it up, and they called it.
The event grossed $304,000, according to promoter Sid Bernstein, who called it the largest return ever in the history of show business. I'd never seen them before perform until that very first time I brought them here at Carnegie Hall. We did two shows, a matinee and an evening show. And of course, you know, uh, I, I knew that Shea Stadium had to be the next venue. And so early in the game, I, I made what I believe to be the first ballpark for a pop group, and that was Shea Stadium for the summer of 65. Are you hysterical yet? Among the 56,000 screaming fans in attendance at Shea were Mick Jagger and Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones who watched in awe. to Toronto's Maple Leaf Gardens. The Beatles tour continued with a flight to Canada. And on Tuesday, August 17th, the Beatles played two 27-minute performances at the Maple Leaf Gardens Indoor Arena in Toronto, Canada. Before the show, the boys gave a quick press conference. Okay, right, can we start the questioning, please? Right there. I'm sorry, I can't hear the question. We must have complete quiet before we start the questioning, right? Complete quiet, please. Yep. Do you have plans uh, beyond when you will be the Beatles? Do you have plans for beyond when you are the Beatles? No. Next, no. please. Yes, over here. How come you're not booked into Montreal for a show? Uh, that's our so manager. We, you know, we don't know why. We, we just go booked. where we're told. That's right. <laughs> he can't go everywhere, you know, and we just got to take a pick. Ringo, would you still like to be a disc jockey? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, one over there. Is it true that you and Bob Dylan are the same person? I didn't read that article, but I think it's quite funny. No, we're not. I yes, think we could be. Please. What are some of your immediate plans for filming and writing? We make a new film sometime in spring, I think, in Spain. And that's all I know of. I don't know what else we're doing. I'd like to know what happened to the colour of John Lennon's hair. Well, at the moment it's, it's covered in sweat, you see, so it looks darker than it is. It is wet. That's why it looks different. Did everybody hear that one? Recently, on the Musical Express poll winners concert uh, and at Shea Stadium, uh, the boys wore military-type uniforms. And what was the last bit? Did they design them themselves? No, we just saw... Uh, we were in the Bahamas and uh, I had nothing to wear and so I borrowed a, borrowed a soldier's outfit off the film and somebody said, wow, that's okay. So I said, right. That's the story I had them made. Do you think that travelling with women companions hurts your image? No. That's what all of you We're not travelling with women companions anyway. We haven't got an image, you know. Have we? Right there. Of all the countries you've been in, which audience has been the most responsive? Gravel, baby. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Gravel, really. 
No, America, because there's mo most people. It's the biggest place. You know. Canada, too, you know. I mean, and Canada. Well, they are. Uh, oh, one for to Atlanta for one show at the brand new Atlanta Stadium on August 18th. We're heading into the busiest leg. You ready for it? You rested up on it? Yeah. Well, we can keep going for, for ages. <laughs> could you continue at a two-show-a-day pace, do you think, for more than a couple of weeks, really? Well, we could, you know, if... Um, we could if it was for this tour, I think we could do two shows a day. I mean, we don't have to because, like, like today, the place is so big. If we did two shows, there wouldn't be enough people, you know. But uh, last year was a bit rough for five weeks. Now, 
that almost knocked us out. But this year, it's you know, I don't think we got any worries. You know, we can last out two and a half weeks easily. The attendance at this venue was 30,000 screaming fans. How you doing there, Mel? You'll give the Beatles the greatest welcome that I've ever heard for them, and I've heard a lot, so I want you to really, really show them that they're loved when we bring them out here in Atlanta. When we bring them out, just hold on. the band flew to Texas for two shows at the Sam Houston Coliseum in Houston, Texas on August 19th. The group arrived in Houston to find Beatlemania at possibly its most acute level yet witnessed. Okay. Ladies, hold it! Hold it! Quiet! 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 Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in Houston, the Beatles! The Beatles! Hello. 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 Howdy. We'd like to carry on in a minute with a song which was about our last but one record release over here in Texas. And the song is called I Feel Fine. Thank you. 
It was the same everywhere. Pandemonium. They're going to call the police. The police are now coming on the field as the 50 or 60 police are on the field. Several girls try to break through the coverage here. The police stop them though. They're backing up a truck right now. A truck is backing up. Police have swarmed around the girls with their 50 policemen around these two girls who almost made it. They were within 100 feet of the world's most popular, most wonderful performers of the Beatles. The Beatles' North American tour rolled on. On August 20th... The band played two shows to some 37,000 screaming fans each show at White Sox Baseball Stadium in Chicago, Illinois. You like this welcome? Yes, marvelous. Why? Why is it different from any place else? It's quite good, you know. It doesn't have to be different. Just that we can't sing. You don't give us any chance. Who doesn't give you a chance? What if everybody's quiet? They'll walk The kids are breaking through out in the field. The police are having their troubles here. With me, I have John Lennon in the uh, basement of Comiskey Park in Chicago. That's uh, right, baby. What'd you say? I said, that's right, baby. <laughs> John, uh, last year, most of the concerts were indoors, and this year, the um, majority of them have been outdoors. Which do you like better? Uh, I, don't, I don't care, you know, as long as it's not raining. I don't mind where it is. You guys today were as loose as I've ever seen you. I mean, just as relaxed. Was there any particular reason for this, or just come naturally? I think it's... Um, in the, when you're playing just after you've got up in the morning, we tend to be hysterical in the morning, either very grumpy or hysterical, you know. So we were just sort of still really half asleep, you know. Um, I also noticed uh, that you were looking around at the stands behind you. You think this is a bad psychological factor at the empty stands, even though they didn't sell that portion? 
yeah, it does put you off a bit, you know. Even though they keep saying, well, we don't allow them to sit there, I'd sooner, I don't know, I wish they'd hide it. But there's also, thanks, also kids always half behind, you know, and I'm look, really looking around so as they get to see something in it. Here's a question I asked Ringo, that's uh, a slight bit deep. Indeed. If you had the oh, chance, uh, which which role do you like better? And there are basically two roles in your life. Uh, your job as a Beatle and uh, your role at home uh, as John Lennon, uh, the guy from Liverpool, and John Lennon, the Beatle. Uh, which do you like better? Uh, it's a tough question to ask, I know. It's not that tough because they're so intermingled, you know. it's. I'm still, I'm no different, you see. I don't look upon it as two different jobs. I change a bit when I leave home, you know, because I've got to smile more or something, I don't know. We all do. But I could only stand being John Lennon at home for so long, and I can only stand being John Lennon Beatle out on tour for so long. So either one, there's no preference, you know. I couldn't stand living without one or the other, without both of them. I couldn't just be John Lennon at home. It wouldn't work, and it wouldn't work just being... John Lennon Beatle, if you know what I mean. As your I know exactly what you mean. Uh, has your wife ever seen one of your concerts? Yeah, she's seen. She used to see a lot of them. She hasn't seen us for quite a bit though. She enjoys them, but it's so she we, she gets to see us when we stay somewhere in England and do a show. She ever get any critiques from her on them? Oh yeah. Well, she used to come around with us a lot and say you're lousy tonight. You know, you're pulling those faces. She doesn't like me fooling around, clowning. You know, she says, "Why are you always pulling them stupid faces?" I don't on TV. You know, I usually pull some kind of face. She doesn't like that. She wants me to be straight. <laughs> John, thanks a lot for talking to us. Okay, Larry. Cynthia Lennon remembers. When John was away, our affection for each other intensified. He would phone as often as he could, but preferred to write tender, funny letters filled with anecdotes, musings, and long passages telling me how much he missed me and longed to come home. In one of his letters written on the Beatles' tour of the States in August 1965, he wrote of his love for Julian. I really miss him as a person now. Do you know what I mean? He's not so much the baby or my baby anymore. He's a real living part of me now. You know he's Julian and everything, and I can't wait to see him. I miss him more than I've ever done before. I think it's been a slow process, my feeling like a real father. I spend hours in dressing rooms and things thinking about the times I've wasted not being with him and playing with him. You know, I keep thinking of those stupid bastard times when I keep reading bloody newspapers and other shit whilst he's in the room with me and I've decided it's all wrong. He doesn't see enough of me as it is, and I really want him to know and love me and miss me like I seem to be missing both of you so much. I'll go now because I'm bringing myself down thinking what a thoughtless bastard I seem to be. And it's only sort of three o'clock in the afternoon and it seems the wrong time of day to feel so emotional. I really feel like crying. It's stupid. And I'm choking up now as I'm writing. I don't know what's the matter with me. It's not the tour that's so different from other tours. I mean, I'm having lots of laughs. You know the type, hee-hee. But in between the laughs, there's such a drop. I mean, there seems no in-between feelings. Anyway, I'm going now so that this letter doesn't get too draggy. I love you very much. To Sin from John. In a P.S., he asked me to try to ring him, and in another, he told me to say hello to my brother Charles for him. His letters weren't always so reflective, but that one wasn't unusual. He found it easier, in many ways, to say what he really meant in a letter, and as he had since the Hamburg days, he used them to tell me how he really felt. A few years later, when John and I had divorced, I sold this letter, along with several others John wrote. 
I was touched and delighted when, some years afterward, the owner put it up for sale again, and Paul McCartney bought it. He had it framed and presented it to me and Julian as a gift. From Chicago, it was off to Minnesota on August 21st for one performance at the Metropolitan Stadium in Minneapolis. It's been quite a day. We had rainfall this morning. We were not sure whether the rain was going to continue throughout the day, but now it looks like all is well for the concert tonight. 71 degrees at the minute, and the skies are clearing. So everything looks good as we stand by for the Beatles' arrival at this press conference. They arrived right on time today. They arrived in the cities at 4.15. Dick, you were there. You uh, saw the uh, the crowd at the airport. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that scene? Well, it's hard to, uh, hard to estimate a crowd like that, uh, Johnny. There were the fences, of course, were probably about a block, block and a half long, about four or five deep. And the minute the Beatles landed, of course, uh, all the uh, people started to rush around, and that, of course, uh, struck right out there. The Beatles were going to come on pose for pictures and so forth, but after the people uh, broke loose like that, then they had to uh, uh, get them out of the way. But it looked like, uh, it's hard to estimate the crowd, I'd say anywhere 5,000 up. Very good. We have a gentleman here that is the Beatles manager. He uh, has just uh, announced that we are going to be having pictures, stills, at the first part of this press conference. The questions will be delayed momentarily uh, as they take the stills. The Beatles still have not arrived. He uh, told us just a moment or two ago, and the door is opening now. We may have the Beatles entering at any second. The door has opened off to my right. Uh, we're in a, in a rather small room with a lot of people. The police have entered now in front of the, uh, in front of the Beatles. Man, they... <laughs> they have billy clubs, they're ready to handle anything, and here they come. We spot Ringo Starr, John Lennon, George Harrison, and uh, the crowd begins to uh, applaud just a little bit as the Beatles have walked in now. Uh, this is John Ravencroft. Uh, on Blackpool Night Out, Paul McCartney's Opportunity Knocked, and you sang yesterday. Is he going to sing that tonight? No. No, he, he doesn't not. sing that. I've okay. asked him and he's not going to. <laughs> Paul, I, I don't have a question, but I, this is Paul Bunyan, WDGY. Uh, you might notice some of the posters that are all around you. These are what our WDGY listeners made to welcome you to the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul. Great. Thank you I very think much, they did a great listeners. Job. Thank you. Hey, uh, Ringo, this is Ed Ripley, WDGY. I've got a question that nobody's asked so far, and that's uh, how the missus is. What did he say? Uh, <laughs> how is the missus? Oh, fine, thanks, fine. <laughs> yeah. Right, we've got just one more question, the very last one coming up here. George, Hi, I want to tell you that if you ever come to Omaha, you can stay at my house. Oh, thank you. The tour continues with less grandeur, but no less excitement. On August 22nd, the Beatles were off to Portland, Oregon, where they performed two shows before a total of 20,000 fans. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. In between performances, the Beatles were visited in their dressing room by Carl Wilson and Mike Love of the Beach Boys. Well, now, the next number is a bit special, sort of. It's a feature, you might call it. This one features... Somebody who doesn't sing often, drink much, etc. Singing a song called, I Wanna Be Your Man, Ringo!
there's another press conference in Portland. We can't sleep with this long hair. Great. People have only had short hair since the World War. So they've been sleeping for all those thousands of years with long hair. It's not a problem, I tell you. It's just as much a problem as having short hair, which to you seems like... It's no more problem. of a problem having short hair, having to keep it short. We'd never start our own label. It's too much trouble, you know. George Harrison on a bed in... Where are we? Going? Portland, Oregon. Portland. You believe? <laughs> you keep track. Uh, people tell us where we are. And sometimes you catch the sign on the airport roof before you, you get in the car. Chicago, Minneapolis, Portland, zigzagging across the United States in the name of rock and roll, the Beatles at their hottest. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll. against modern jazz Unless you try to play it too darn fast I lose the beauty of the melody Until it sounded like a symphony That's why I go for that rock and roll music Any old way you choose it It's got a backbeat you can't lose it Any old time you use it It's gotta be rock and roll music If you wanna dance with me
On August 23rd, the Beatles and their entourage flew into Los Angeles Airport. a clear break from the tour. They rested in a massive house amid tight security in Benedict Canyon, Hollywood. Late in the evening on August 27th, John, Paul, George, and Ringo took a limo to Perugia Way in Beverly Hills to meet their one-time idol, Elvis Presley. It is 1965, and the Beatles are absolute sensations. The biggest phenomenon since, well, since Elvis himself. They dominate pop culture the way Elvis did eight years earlier with a number one single, a number one album, and a number one movie, all titled Help. Elvis's current movie, Tickle Me, is a flop, and it's been years since he made a real rock and roll record. Still, there's only one person the Fab Four really want to see while they tour America. And in August of 65, before playing the Hollywood Bowl, they call on Elvis at his gated Beverly Hills home. George Harrison recalls. It was funny, because by the time we got near his house we forgot where we were going we were in this cadillac limousine and you know that what it's like in la everything goes round and round and round and round and then we i think we're going along mulholland and we had a couple of cups of tea in the back of the car and by the time we got to elvis's house we forgot where we were going it didn't really matter where we were going Bel Air, actually. Here's Ringo Starr. And, uh, you know, this meet was arranged. We were going to go and see him. I was pretty excited about it all. And we arrived. We pulled up and there was these big gates and somebody said, Oh, yeah, we're going to see Elvis. And then we all fell out, just like in a Beatle cartoon. We all fell out the car, all <laughs> in hysterics, trying to pretend we weren't. <laughs> Silly. It's supposed to be a secret, but somehow word gets out. And there was thousands of kids outside the house who get leaked out. There's thousands all over the walls, the fences, everywhere. Elvis, the princes finally meet the king. It was a very interesting evening because uh, obviously Elvis had been one of their idols. Management representative Ed Leffler. Invited to Elvis's house, and uh, which was with the one understanding from both sides that there would be absolutely no publicity whatsoever attendant to this. John Lennon, Elvis yeah. Presley. Uh, Paul McCartney, Elvis Presley. 
uh, George Harrison, Elvis Presley, and all of a sudden, the Beatles are walking in the house. And then we went in the house, and there's Elvis sitting on the couch playing a Fender bass. And it's like, you know, introducing royalty to royalty. One thing leads to another, and they come in, and the Beatles, being very, very shy people, were sitting there, and nobody said anything. It was very strange, because Elvis and his people were sitting on one side of the room, and the boys sat down on another side of the room. And they're just staring at him now. I mean, it was Elvis. He just, just looked like Elvis. He was the king, wasn't he? Is Elvis. This is Mr. Hips, you know. Hips swiveling man. Wow, you know, that's Elvis. And he was playing um, Mohair Sam all evening. He had it on jukebox. He just played it like endlessly. That was like the record of the moment for him. There's a moment of silence. As a matter of fact, it was a long moment of silence. He had his a TV going all the time, which is what I do anyway. And in front of the TV, he had a massive big bass amplifier, Fender bass amplifier, or just a Fender amplifier. And, a, oh yeah, it was a bass with a bass plugged in it. And he's playing bass all the time with the uh, the picture up on the TV. <laughs> so it was great to see, oh, he's a music fan. You know, he's not just, because that was one of our big records at the moment too. So finally Elvis sits there and he's nervous and the Beatles are sitting there and they don't know what to say. Just sitting there, no one's saying anything for what felt like uh, an hour, I'm sure it was about five minutes, but it was uh, everyone studying each other and... Finally he just looked at him and he said, hey look, if y'all are going to stare at me all night long, I'm going to bed. Uh, I'm going to bed, man. Yeah, I was kind of hoping we could uh, sit around and talk, uh, maybe about music, uh, maybe even jam. Jam! And when he said that, they just went nuts. Finally Elvis took his guitar out and started to sing and the boys did the same thing and it was incredible. So we just got in there and uh, played with him, you know, we all plugged in what was ever around, we all played and sang. And, you know, because that was a dream for them. So then they got up and went by the piano and they started singing. I mean, every one of us had said, boy, if we just had a tape recorder, that would have been fantastic. surface it appears to be a light-hearted jam session i never jammed with elvis at all no uh, he john said he did john interview. jammed with elvis yeah it must have been he when we went out of the room secretly at night i think it was because he had a bass there you know so i thought a basement right well you know bass hey this is interesting football with him though yeah i play <laughs> football with elvis but the beatles are painfully aware of elvis's decline as the king of rock and roll and roundabout. 10 or 10.30, Priscilla was brought in. So I think she had a long thing on and a tiara. I've got this picture of her like, as a sort of Barbie doll with like gingham, kind of purple gingham and a bow, a gingham bow in her very beehive hair. I don't remember, I spent most of the party trying to suss out from his gang if anybody had any reefer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think uh, it wouldn't have mattered to me if she was there uh, just you know, because it was him I came to see, and and I don't remember the boys he had with him. You know, all these gang, the Memphis Mafia, whatever they call them, all those guys. Well, you know, he just was surrounded by these sycophants. Uh, I'm going to go to the loo now. Okay, I'll, we'll all go to the loo with you. You know, it was just so 
strange and I was just so angry because he wasn't making any music. He was not doing what he should have been doing. <laughs> John Lennon is the Beatle who finally breaks the ice on this touchy subject. Mr. Lennon cornered Elvis in one part of the house and said, uh, well, Elvis, how come you, you, know, you don't cut any more rock and roll records like you used to? And Elvis replied, uh, well, you know, it's my film schedule. It's kind of tight, but uh, maybe I'll cut one soon just for kicks. And Lennon replied, well, in that case, we'll buy that one. We were asking him about this, just making movies and, you know, not doing any personal appearances or TV. And he seems to enjoy, you know, I think he enjoys making movies so much. He says he misses it a bit, you know, because we couldn't stand not doing personal appearances, you know. We'd get bored, we'd get bored quickly. I bet it shook Elvis up a little bit. By the time they left, you know, they, they had said this was the greatest night and... He's just, no, he was great, you know, it's just how I expected him. It was, it was great, it was great, uh, you know, it was one of the great meetings in my life. Paul and John, uh, in particular, had said, well, look, if you guys are not doing anything tomorrow, how about coming over to see us? And Elvis said, well, I'll try. Well, we knew he wasn't going to go. I mean, the saddest part is now, years and years later, we found out that he tried to have us banished from America because he was very big with the CIA and everything. And it's, uh, that's very sad to me, that he felt so threatened that he thought, like a lot of people, that we were bad for the American youth. Well, you ain't never caught a rabbit. You ain't no friend of mine. A dream is born that night in the heart of Elvis Presley. A burning desire to get back to his rock and roll roots. It will take him three years to realize that dream. The next day, on August 28th, the Beatles are asked about their meeting with Elvis Presley before taking the stage for a show at Balboa Stadium in San Diego, California. How's your throat, first of all, John? Uh, it seemed, I've seemed to have got my voice back, so... Uh, you gonna do twist and shout tonight, then? Oh, yeah, forgot about that. You're gonna put it back in? Yeah, well, it's, we only do half it anyway, it's just an introduction, you know, nobody hears it, really. Uh, we met Elvis last night. Which is great. Yeah, tell us about that. Uh, this has been a meeting that's been in the works for a long time, I guess, right? Yeah, well, it's always been so sort of, you know, we're always just in the wrong place at the wrong time to meet him. And there was all, you know, we would have just gone round or something. There was all a lot of palaver about where we go and how many people should know and everything, you know, with the managers, of Colonel Tom and Brian working everything out. So, but it was good when we met him. He's great. What's he like? Is he, uh, now we've heard, we hear stories here in the States about anybody who was as secluded as Elvis. He's really kept away from the public eye, except in the movies and uh, no television, does nothing else yeah. but movies. Is he uh, a nervous, uh, strange individual or did he strike you as a normal guy? No, he just seemed normal to us, you know. You played the guitar, right? Yeah, he, well, he has a bass guitar sort of permanently plugged in alongside the TV. What are your immediate reflections on your visit last night with Elvis Presley? Oh, uh, great, actually. I liked it a lot, you know, because I didn't expect him to be half as nice as he was. I understand he gave you guys a whole box full of records. Yeah, we asked the Colonel when we saw him the other day for um, Elvis's very early albums, which are deleted, I think, now in England. But they're the ones we liked, so he gave us a parcel each. Did he meet up to your expectations as far as a person? He, he was more—he he was a bit more than I anticipated. In what way? Well, um, I expect him to be quieter, 
and for him not to have a, such a, uh, an amount of noise in his house. In fact, when we walked into his house, it was exactly like going into ours. You know, it's great, just the record player, TV and electric guitars all playing all at once, you know. What did you do over there? Well, we had drinks, some played pool, some were playing roulette. We, we were playing electric guitars and playing records and watching TV, everything, you know. It was good. Did you have any uh, serious discussions about music? I talked just a little about asking him why he didn't record some of the, the older stuff or something like the, in the old style because we thought that was much better. And he, he, I think he seemed to want to do something like that himself, you know. But we didn't really talk much about business things because, you know, it's, it's quite hard, you know, meeting people like that. Hard for him and us, you know, to be embarrassing. But, you know, so we lay off and talk about different things altogether, like other people and other records, you know. John, how are you? Fine, thanks, Larry. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, what did you think of your... Uh, what were your immediate reflections of your meeting last night? With Elvis, it was great, you know, because... We were all a bit nervous, and he was a bit nervous, because it's sort of embarrassing meeting people for the first time, especially if you want to meet them. You find him like you thought you'd find him, the type of person? Yeah, you know, he was, he was just sort of as normal as you can be in that situation. You know, he was just like us. I don't know if this was discussed, but it seems to me an Elvis Beatle album would be like the best-selling album in history. But it, I don't... None of us have ever liked those albums where they put two people together or either similar or, you know, I don't know, it's like Sonata and somebody else, you know. Not a band, not... You know, but I don't like that. Anyway, I'd hate an album like that. Tell me something. What are your immediate feelings and reflections about uh, your visit last night? I just loved it, you know, and it was... It was just great, because he was a great guy, you know. He was no big sort of showbiz thing, you know. Not that we ever thought he was, but you never know, you know. You meet people and suddenly, you know, they're not like you expect and you don't like them anymore, but we, it was great. We had a good time. Did you discuss music at all? Um, we didn't sort of have any big discussions. It was just sort of general talk, but music and records got into it, you know. We sort of liked similar records and he likes ours and, you know, we were telling him which ones of his we liked and things and talking about different points and, you know, and watching TV and doing everything, you know, it was a good night. Were you guys nervous before meeting him? A little, yeah. I honestly think we all were a bit sort of... But uh, the thing is, he was too, you know, so we were all in the same boat. Paul, uh, what are your uh, immediate reflections about last night, your meeting with Elvis Presley? It was very nice, Larry. Very nice. I had a good time. Uh, he's a nice fella. Just what I expected, in fact. And uh, we tried to persuade him to make some new records like the old records so we had a good we had a good laugh a few drinks uh, rocking and rolling playing the instruments and a uh, bit of billiards bit of roulette roulette I had a great time yes yes gambling away lost I lost of course <laughs> I always lose you know terrible when you say uh, you try to persuade him to make some new records what do you mean uh, by new records well records more like the old sound used to be you know the wilder records that he had because those are definitely our favourites, you know, we all love them. And uh, we think that he hasn't made any as good as that for a long time. And, uh, you know, I think he tended to agree a bit last night, because we were just saying it'd be great if he, if he got into a recording studio and did some completely new tracks and released them as his singles instead of uh, film songs off albums and things, or, or old songs that he recorded two years ago. And so I think we persuaded him, I think he might do it, you know. I hope he does because I'll be down to my record store with my shilling in my hand. 
I understand uh, Malcolm Evans, uh, one of your road managers, is quite an Elvis fan. Did he get a kick out of it too? Yeah, well, Malcolm has been in Elvis's fan club for years and years, and he's got every record he's ever made. And, you know, he's just sort of grown up, and he works for us, but he likes Elvis more, you know. And when he met him, it was, I think, the biggest thrill in his life. Maybe the only one remaining unimpressed with Elvis was press agent Derek Taylor. From the very first, he was a strong Beatles supporter. I wasn't really uh, aware of, of Buddy Holly or, or Chuck Berry or any side. I had no context in which to place what they were doing. I was seeing them roar. I was, I'd been an Elvis hater in 1955. Then had moved around with a gang of, of uh, drunken quasi-intellectuals, uh, of whom I was one, saying that, uh, that there was an anti-culture movement around in Britain, spearheaded by a lot of people wearing black leather, like Elvis Presley. So I was really not in a position to judge whether they were singing American songs or what they were singing, except I'd never seen or heard energy like it, or seen four more likable people on stage since Danny Kaye who I think is one of the, also one of the great geniuses. So, it was really the thump, thump, thump that attracted me. It was brand new. It was, it was a, quite a new sensation. Two concerts at the Hollywood Bowl came next. Unbelievable crowds and the songs under starry skies. Sunday, August 29th, and Monday, August 30th, the Beatles played the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles, California. Would you consider uh, Hollywood, the Hollywood Bowl, um, the most important part of your tour? This year, or for any year, that matter? No, Dave, no. <laughs> Although the previous year's concert recording from this venue was gathering dust in a vault at Abbey Road Studios, this did not prevent Capitol Records and George Martin from trying again, taping the Beatles' performance on both nights for possible release on record. KRLA disc jockey Casey Kasem! KRLA disc jockey Bill Slater! And that wild and wonderful Italian Dick Biondi! Soon to follow on the schedule, San Francisco, the Cow Palace. Last summer in San Francisco, a uh, doctor said that the Beatles uh, were instruments of the communist uh, yes. propaganda. Yippee. 
that you were that you were softening up and corrupting America's youth. Yes. What yeah. did you yeah. say to that? Watch out next yeah, year. Yeah, you know, doctor of what? Who was he to say it? Who was he? You know, he's just some halfwit. You know, they call themselves doctors and Nurses sergeants and, and things. Yeah. <laughs> we're all capitalists anyway. You know, don't worry. Capitalist, get it? <laughs> yeah. August 31st saw the 10th and final concert of the 1965 North American tour. There were two shows, a matinee seen by 11,700 and an evening performance seen by 17,000. The Beatles are on stage now. Here's the first number and listen to that crowd. Well, you were the safest guy on that stage just now, weren't you? Yes, I was the safest guy on that stage. Well, they were right to say that, yes, but the thing is, so was all that why, you know. You get scared? Really? Um, this is, this is, I think that today, you know, is the first time I ever had, you know, any feeling of doubt that we're okay. Usually we just say, yeah, you know, a couple down stage and they run around, and, but we're okay. But today it got a bit dodgy. That had to be the wildest concert of this tour. Uh, it was, yeah. It was wild. And Malcolm took a dive into the audience there. You got grabbed a couple of times and called it, huh? Yeah, some little lad got my hat and then... This thing like that, he, somebody like him, he, he doesn't really care about the show anyway. All the kids there, he just grabbed my hat from behind and just dived full length onto some kids at the front. He could have killed one of them, you know, that kind of fool. Nobody needs. John, I know you're relaxing. We have another show to do here. We have, you have another show here to do in San Francisco. Home tomorrow. You're about ready, I bet, after now. Huh? Yeah, I think that. I mean, we, we couldn't have top it with anything else like this. I don't think it'd have been a, as bad if the photographers hadn't been standing in the front and the kids had to stand up to see and the photographers got higher so as to photograph the kids standing up and then, then it started. You know. We who aren't up there will never know, I guess, the feeling. I was down on the side and I felt fear. Now, do you ever feel actual fear, physical harm to yourself? Does that bother you then? Sometimes, not very often. At the beginning, I was nervous, you know, because... I get nervous thinking, well, the show's going to be no good anyway. But I could tell that, but, you know, for us, it was just a, a drag, you know. We knew that they wouldn't hear anything. And the guitars were knocked out of tune by, you know, our own people running in, saving us. And amplifiers are pulled out. So you get nervous more for just the idea that you're going to play for half an hour and nothing's going to happen. I don't mean people not hearing you because of screaming. Just people not hearing you because it's just... You know, like a riot, not, not sort of like a show. No, I've heard more screaming at other concerts, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we, we might have been waxworks for half, for half, you know, what the good we did there. You know, nobody heard anything, or not even, you know, a basic beat or anything. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we hope you've enjoyed the show. Did you enjoy it? Yes. Oh, no. Thank you. Good. Is everybody happy? Right then. We'd like to carry on with the song, which is the B-side of our latest record, and this song is called I'm uh, Down. You tell I think I can see. You can try to do nothing me. I'm down. I'm down. I'm down. I'm down, I'm really down, I'm down, I'm really down, I'm down, I'm really 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 down, I
When you know I'm down. When you know I'm down. That was the last concert in the 1965 American tour in San Francisco. Goodbye Golden Gate, America, and the month of August. The Beatles flew home on September 1st, landing at London Airport the morning of the 2nd, and then they enjoyed almost six weeks' break without work. Cynthia Lennon recalls what it was like at home when John returned. John would arrive home from tours exhausted and spend the next few days more or less asleep, which meant I had constantly to keep Julian quiet and away from our bedroom. Julian missed his father when he was away and painted endless pictures for Daddy. So when he came home, Julian couldn't wait to see him. The rule was that at two in the afternoon, John had a wake-up call and a cup of tea. Julian, who had waited impatiently all morning to see his Daddy, would go in as soon as I gave the signal and jump on John for cuddles and a chat. It was usually several days before John was back to normality, but then he was like a tornado wanting to know about everything he'd missed and wrestling with Julian, who shadowed his every move. He'd settled down to go through the fan mail, which by then had piled up by the sackload. Julian's tiny fingers would be poking into everything. Look, Julian, John would say, these letters are very important. They're our bread and butter, see? This one is your breakfast, that one's your dinner, and this one is a new guitar for Daddy. After a while, it would be, OK, OK, come on, let's go for a walk in the garden and pick some flowers for Mummy and they disappear for a couple of hours. John loved being with his son, but in short bursts. His moods could be unpredictable, and at times he was intolerant and impatient with Julian. If you let me take your heart, I will prove to you We will never be apart If I'm part of you Open up your eyes now Tell me what you see It is no surprise now What you see is me Big and black the clouds may be Time will pass away If you put your trust in me 
I'll make bright your day Look into these eyes now Tell me what you see Don't you realize now What you see is me Tell me what you see Listen to me one more time How can I get through? Can't you try to see that I'm Trying to get to you? Open up your eyes now Tell me what you see It is no surprise now What you see is me Listen to me one more time How can I get through? Can't you try to see that I'm Trying to get to you? Open up your eyes now Tell me what you see It is no surprise now What you see is me They returned to London to the news from EMI that their second album, With the Beatles, had sold over one million copies in Britain alone. And on September the 4th, Help the Single was number one in the U.S. And on September 6th, Brian Epstein announced that he had signed the Moody Blues to a management and agency contract with NEMS Enterprises. Also on September 6th, Capitol Records released an orchestral version of the Beatles' Help LP, arranged, produced, and conducted by George Martin. And on September 11th, Help the Album was also number one. Ringo, I understand that the record album Help has four different numbers in the English version and in the United States version. Is this uh, true? Yes, and so why? Yeah. Because uh, on the English now. album there's 14 tracks and they're all our numbers. And on the American one, I don't know how many tracks there are, but then you've got some... There's seven of us. It's real capital issue, all sort of mad stuff. You know, it's nothing to do with us. We See, make 14 tracks to be put out, but they keep a couple of them and take out later. It's, it's a drag because, you know, the album, we, we make an album to be like an album and to be a complete thing and we send it over here no offense capital but we send it over here and they put the soundtrack on and if so you know if someone's going to buy one of our records i think they want to hear us and not soundtrack they even change the photograph off the front and put something daft on yeah either that or they should make it all well, sound the capital would like to come round after we'll settle it we'll see you. yet another new single was released in america on september 13th and that's next. Coming up in a moment, the group goes day tripping at Buckingham Palace and take along their ticket to ride. There's some hand-holding and hanky-panky with a sex goddess. As well as record a new LP. And spurts of insanity. Next on Yesterday and Today. Kaminsky?
بشه information or to contact the show visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com also visit at yesterdaypod on twitter and search yesterday and today podcast on facebook see you next time I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally... We'll do an all-star podcast. We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once. That is true. <laughs> we are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird. See? We weren't <laughs> even lying.